0: As we approach Easter, we're using the Gospel accounts of Mark and Luke and John to learn again of the events which detail the death of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The only reason I'm not including Matthew's Gospel in this little series of three is because we're making our way through that particular Gospel already on Sunday mornings. The New Testament Gospels all record the same story but they vary in their precise content. No one account records every single detail. What one writer decides to include, another writer may not include. Something one writer mentions in passing, another writer expands upon it in quite some detail. And these things actually are typical of eyewitness accounts. Nothing to worry about in that regard. And together they give us this really full picture of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. So last week we studied Mark's narrative of the account of Christ's crucifixion. Last week we took note of three particular things. We saw that Jesus was delivered into the hands of the Roman soldiers. He was scourged, he was humiliated, ridiculed, abused, mistreated... As the promised Messiah, he had to be wounded and bruised, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We saw, of course, Jesus delivered up to die and even the death of the cross. A cruel, shameful, public way to die. Thousands of eyewitnesses on that day. And that's not insignificant. This story of Christ's crucifixion is not the stuff of myth or fable or of murky intrigue. Few deaths have been more public than this. Everyone in Jerusalem was talking about it that weekend. And then thirdly, we saw that Jesus is cursed as if a transgressor and a sinner. All that we deserve in the filth and guilt of our sins before a holy God. We who rightfully bear the curse of condemnation because of our transgressions. If Jesus will save us, he must take it all. Deal with it all. Bear it all. Pay for it all. As he put to his disciples, he must drink of that cup which the Father has given him. And he must drink every single drop. And he did. And as we move into Luke's Gospel, as we move, God willing, into John next Sunday morning, what I want to do is use their Gospel accounts to focus upon additional pieces of information that Mark didn't include or that he may have only mentioned briefly. And so as we do this, we're building up a bigger and clearer picture of all that took place at the cross. This is what the four Gospels together do for us. And there's a very great deal to consider when it comes to the cross of Christ. Well, the first thing I want us to consider this morning is this. Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God. Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God. We read in Luke's account, Pilate said to them, we've examined him in your presence. I found no fault in this man concerning the things of which you accuse him. Neither did Herod. Nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Then he says to them again, what evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. Then we have the criminals alongside him, uh, blaspheming, if you're the Christ, save yourself, but the other, he rebukes the other one. I mean, Presumably, these, we presume these two guys know one another, perhaps they didn't, perhaps they're strangers. But he says, don't you even fear God? We are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. And then we have the centurion, when he saw what happened, glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, that time in Israel's history, which they revere, particularly, was that time when Israel as a nation were released from captivity in Egypt under Moses. You remember how God brought ten plagues upon Egypt as Pharaoh continued to refuse to let them go, and the tenth and final plague was by far the worst of them all, the death of the firstborn. It would affect Pharaoh's family it would affect the family of the lowliest servant in Egypt, even of the animals. The firstborn in every family will die tonight. But God provides a means of safety and a means of escape from death for Israel. Each family would take a lamb. The lamb had to be without blemish and not more than one year old. It was to be killed, and its blood was to be sprinkled around the doorframe of their house, and then its flesh was to be roasted and eaten. And when the angel passed over the land, the blood on the doorframe would be a sign for them to be protected. They would be passed over. Judgment and death would not come to them. The lamb has already died. And their release from captivity would be secured. That's in chapters 11 and 12 of Exodus. They were saved from death and they would be released from captivity. And this is one of the many images in the Old Testament which speak of death and of shedding of blood in order that men and women might be saved and be released from bondage. In Egypt, it was the physical bondage of slavery. Well, what about you and me? What about our captivity? Well, you may say, what captivity? Well, the captivity of our sin. We're born with sinful hearts which hold us and keep us captive in sinful rebellion and disobedience against God. And there's nothing that any of us can do of ourselves to break out of that from out of our hearts comes every evil the bible teaches us jesus said it and that's true of every single one of us every wickedness that man has ever conceived is all bound up in each one of us even as we're growing in our mother's womb it's only the common grace of God which keeps us from being as evil as we might be. And that sin holds us, it holds us captive. There's nothing that we can do to break out of it, to break its grip and to free ourselves. It makes us transgressors. It makes us lawbreakers. We cannot help ourselves. We are worthy only of condemnation and punishment in God's sight because of our sin. Our position in our sin is perilous. The wages of our sin is death. The Bible speaks of two deaths. There's the first death, which is the death of our bodies. The reason we go to the grave is because of our sin. The Bible also speaks of a second death. You can read of that in the book of Revelation. The second death is when sinners are judged and are cast into eternal punishment in hell. An eternal death. The lake which burns unendingly with fire and brimstone. That's not a cartoon. It's very real. Death is coming as surely as it was coming to Israel and to Egypt all those centuries before. Is there a way to be rescued from death? Is there a way to be released from captivity? Yes. For Israel in Egypt, it required a lamb. For you, in your sin, it requires a lamb. And a lamb who must be without blemish. Now, for hundreds of years, the Jews continued to observe the ceremonial sacrifice of animals as part of their religious worship, that worship that had been given to them by God. They did it first in their portable tabernacle as they wandered through the wilderness, and later they would do it in the temple in Jerusalem. That system of worship, like the lambs killed back in Egypt, all appointed by God to bring home this truth. The death of another, the blood of another, is required. Because that's how Serious sin is in God's eyes. Now, it might not be in yours. But frankly, on this issue, your opinion doesn't matter. It's the truth of God that matters. Sin is not just a bit of naughtiness. Sin is not just a little bit of mischief. It's a heinous and severe violation of who God is and of the truth he's given you and of his image in which you and I were created. It violates all of that. And the wages of sin is death, God declares. But here's the great news regarding God's grace and God's mercy. The blood of another will be accepted by God as the payment for my sin and yours. And the blood of another will enable the sinner to be set free from the captivity of sin. Hence, John the Baptist, with pointed finger, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world And everyone's eyes followed to see where John's finger was pointing. And it wasn't where, it was who. There stood Jesus. Have you beheld him? Have you beheld him? In the New Testament, The letter to the Hebrews is all about Jesus being the complete and the final and the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. The fulfilment of all of those images which were foreshadowing him in the Old Testament. Finally, there will be blood shed for sins which will actually deal with our sins. Blood which will bring true and lasting cleansing and forgiveness of sin. And nothing but the blood of Jesus. But remember, those lambs had to be without blemish. A perfect sacrifice is required. A sinless sacrifice is required. Not too many sinless people around, are there? Have you ever met one? What, not even when you looked in the mirror this morning? No, not even there. So Luke presents us with four witnesses who, along with the rest of Scripture's testimony, can all recognize there's something very unique and different about this man on the middle cross. The Bible says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. Well, Luke, just for good measure, gives us four. Pilate, number one, I have found no fault in this man. Neither, number two, did Herod. Then, one of the criminals, number three. We receive due reward for our deeds as we hang here. This man, or maybe he was pointing that way, but this man, he has done nothing wrong. And then the centurion, number four. When he saw what happened because he was stood there the whole time he glorified God certainly this was a righteous man a sinner cannot stand in the place of sinners because as the criminal hanging next to Jesus understood only too well, we're here because this is where we deserve to be. We have our own sins to pay for. What is required is one without blemish who has no sins of their own to pay for. Such a one as that can qualify to stand in the place of sinners such a one as that, God will accept. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Pilate and Herod recognized him. The criminal on the cross recognized him. The centurion recognized him. The Bible declares him as he who knew no sin who was made sin for us. He is the altogether righteous one from heaven. But it does need a little bit more than recognition. You do need to recognize him as the sinless one. But then you must see and understand that here on the cross hangs the one who is your only hope. Your only hope. That this blood being shed is the only blood that can cleanse and save you from your sin. That this sinless Lamb of God is who you need to return to in repentance and in saving faith because there is salvation in no other. Death is coming to every single one of us. But here is the glorious message of Easter. The lamb has been slain. Sin's captivity is too strong for you to break. But here is the glorious message of Easter. The lamb has been slain. Come and stand this morning Shoulder to shoulder with the centurion. And tell me, who do you see on the cross? (coughs) Secondly, we see in Luke's account, loving kindness beyond measure. Father, forgive them. This surely must have been one of the things that convinced the centurion. Here is a battle-hardened infantryman and officer who has seen and heard it all, or so he thought. Just another routine crucifixion. Goodness knows how many he might have overseen. Just another day at the office for the likes of him. Or so he thought. But he's been left staggered. He's become accustomed accustomed to the victims of crucifixion, either crying for their mums like little babies, or turning the air blue with obscenity and everything in between. But... What has he just heard this man say? I suspect that never before had this centurion heard such depth of conviction. Never has he heard such heartfelt pleading. Never has he heard these words come from the mouth of one being crucified. Father, Well, let's just pause there for a moment. That is amazing. That's amazing. Am I right in thinking that you've been through a few situations in your time and the last thing you felt like calling God is your father? More like some God you are. Some God you're proving to be. Have there not been times when, perhaps much to your shame today, those kinds of thoughts have gone through your mind? Some God this is. Not Jesus. Not even here. Father. Unbroken communion. Unbroken submission unbroken obedience, unbroken trust, unbroken prayer for the lost, even on the cross. Father, forgive them. Now, I'm not a betting man, nor should you be. But if I were... I think it will be a safe wager to put your money on those two words never having been uttered from a Roman cross before or since. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what is actually happening here. They are clueless as to how it is that the self-determined wickedness of evil men is actually under the sovereign power of God and is being used by God to do his will and to fulfil his eternal purposes and to fulfil biblical prophecy. They are clueless. What it is which is being brought to its tumultuous conclusion at the cross... And we see this morning that in the Lord Jesus, there is such compassion, such loving kindness, such mercy for sinners. Even when they're doing their worst against him, he prays that they would yet know the Father's forgiveness. Where is the spite, the anger, the bitterness, the rage, the, the shouts of protest that you'd usually expect to hear from a man who is innocent But being crucified, no such thing comes from his mouth because no such thing is in his heart because Jesus is able to cast his soul heavenwards and plead his father's forgiveness, forgiveness for his accusers and for his executioners. Does not even that one thing demonstrate that this is no ordinary man? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that passion, that mission is deep within him and it cannot be extinguished. We're told that the centurion glorified God. Now just how much he understood, I don't know. But he knew that something wonderfully divine was happening before his eyes that day. And what we witness here in Christ, it actually also shows us who are believers what is required of us who are his followers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had spoken of loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile. And some might think, well... They were just figures of speech Jesus was using. He's just exaggerating to make a point. He doesn't really expect us to actually do all that stuff. Sure, he wants us to be kind and considerate, but really, to go to those lengths? Well, listen to him now as he speaks from the cross. Forgiveness and loving kindness pouring out of his soul. The man who said, Follow me, follow me. This is what it is to be a disciple of Christ. And then for this morning, I want to conclude with the third point as we consider this really well-known interaction between Jesus and this criminal who's gasping for breath alongside him. Let me just remind you of what Luke records for us. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, "'If you are the Christ, save yourself and us.' But the other, answering, rebuked him, "'Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation?' And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Point three, guilty sinners deserving of death may have life everlasting. Guilty sinners deserving of death may have life everlasting. And that, dear friends, is the gospel. This criminal sees two things more clearly than he's ever seen anything else before. First, he sees himself as he truly is, a guilty sinner who deserves the punishment he's receiving. That's quite an admission to make. We are justly condemned, he says. We receive the due reward of our deeds. This is exactly how God in his perfect and righteous judgment looks upon us and must deal with us in our sin. We saw this in chapter 2 of Romans some months ago. We read these words. We know that God's judgment against against those who do such things, speaking of our sin, is based on truth. Because of your stubbornness, And your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. I don't see how God could have spelled this out any clearer. And then right at the end of the Bible, almost at the very end of the Bible, that vision that Christ gives to the Apostle John in chapter 20, this is what John sees. I saw the dead, small and great, the whole whole of humanity, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Because as we've just reminded the children, God sees and knows and hears everything. And It's all written down. It's all written down. The sea gave up the dead, which were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to their works. That which can only be the Spirit of God was stirring up the conscience of that criminal, stirring up the heart of that criminal, working in the mind of that criminal as he observed Christ and as he considered himself as he stared death in the face. Firstly, he was confronted by his own sin and his own guilt and he knew that he was without excuse, which is why no excuse comes out of his mouth, only an admission of his sin and his guilt. Next, as we've explored already, he could see that this man Jesus is not like him. This man has done nothing wrong and yet here he hangs. Lord. Now, as that criminal pleaded with the Lord, where was he looking? Up into the sky? No. Read verse 42. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom just before this dying man closed his eyes for the very last time his eyes were opened so that he could see like he'd never seen before he didn't know all the right words to say he was no theologian but that doesn't matter It has to be the Spirit of God at work because you do not call Jesus Lord like that unless a transforming work of God is taking place within you. This man, this man is the promised Messiah. This man is my only hope. Lord, you've heard me. I've just confessed my sin. I've just confessed my guilt. It's true. This cross is where I deserve to be. But Lord, I've just heard you plead for forgiveness from God the Father and how I need to be forgiven. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Lord, that by your grace I might be found in your kingdom too. Now, no, you won't find him saying all of those words in your Bible, but I'm totally convinced that all of that was contained within his plea, and I'm convinced of it because of the reply he receives from the Lord to whom he just made this request. Assuredly, says Jesus, you might want to put it like this, I can absolutely guarantee it. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, for you to be absent from the body will mean that you are present with me in heaven forever. Because guilty sinners deserving of death may have life everlasting. I may not know, I cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but I believe it was for me he hung and suffered there. He died that I might be forgiven. He died to make me good, that I may go at last to heaven. Saved by his precious blood, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let me in. If you can see, if you are convinced, as we sing those words, that this is God's truth in Christ Jesus. That he is God's salvation for you, a guilty sinner. Then as you sing these words with us, simply say in your own heart, Lord Remember me.